0: and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits mm-hmm. Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Krista K. Thomason, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Swarthmore College. We will discuss her book, Naked, The Dark Side of Shame and Moral Life, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Krista.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I'm really glad you came on and I'm glad we connected, I believe, via Agnes Callard uh, recommending your book um, because I found it really fascinating and provocative. And these ideas about shame are ones that legal scholars have talked about. And it was really interesting to see this same discussion from a more philosophical uh, perspective. Um But for listeners who may not be immersed in either the legal or the philosophical literature on on shame, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about why you chose to write write on shame. I mean, why does the concept of shame present a philosophical problem uh, in your view?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. so I, uh, when I started working on shame, I, have always, I sort of always have been interested in um, moral emotions. Um, and so that's kind of how I got to shame in the first place, just sort of starting to read about different moral emotions and what role they play in moral life. And shame is one of those emotions that's been a part of this discussion for, in philosophy for a really long time. And uh, for about as long as it's been around, it's probably been sort of equally as controversial. And the, the sort of fight between philosophers about this is, you know, whether or not shame turns out to be a good thing morally. So is it, are we good people if we feel shame? Is it a good thing that we feel shame? Or is shame one of those emotions that sort of always destructive or bad or um, causes us a lot of pain or impedes our moral development somehow. um, And therefore we should, you know, get over it. So this is the, this is sort of like the two kind of camps about shame. Um, So I started reading the literature when I kind of um, got into the project and uh, it's funny because this is actually how I came up with the title of the book. So I was reading a lot of moral philosophy about shame and I was looking at all of the examples that they would use of cases of shame. And um, it would be things like, oh, I, I cheated on a test or um, I, I stole some candy from a store or I was, I was uh, ungrateful when somebody tried to give me a gift. And I looked at all these examples and I thought to myself, where are all the naked people? Like, where are all of the examples of, you know, people being seen... Um, you know, like somebody knocks on the dressing room door and opens it when it's unlocked, or something like that, or like people, you know, being, having sex, or the, like that sort of thing. And I thought, why are these examples sort of nowhere in the literature? They would sometimes be mentioned, but then they would sort of like quickly be thrown aside as. I don't know, like irrational reactions or well that's just not the sort of thing that we're talking about here. We're talking about some other kind of shame or only shame in these sorts of cases. And so I thought, well, but what would happen if we took those cases, the the naked ones, and we put them sort of front and center. What would we find out about shame and its moral status if we started there? And so that's where kind of the inspiration for the book Started
0: well, so I, mean, I I think this might be a difficult question to answer because it's a little difficult for me to ask exactly. But sort of, what exactly do we mean, do you think, when we talk about shame? I mean, how is shame as an emotion different or unique in relation to other, like maybe similar or related emotions like embarrassment or guilt or other kinds of bad feelings we might have about ourselves or our behavior?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, this is one of the, um, I think, kind of first steps that a lot of people try to take in the literature is just get a sense of like where is shame kind of in the landscape, in the map of our moral emotions? Where does it sit? Um, and so the contrast that people tend to make first is the, the contrast between shame and guilt. So I I'll say that I don't really have, I don't really have like well worked out views about the difference between the two, but I don't have enough of an answer to disagree with like the typical conception of the difference between shame and guilt. So I'll just go ahead and say like, so shame. So usually the the way that people will describe it is um, we usually feel guilty for things that we do, some sort of action that we take. And we feel shame about something about ourselves, something about our character, something about um, my sense of who I am um something about me so the way they'll put it is sort of shame is kind of a holistic judgment of the person whereas guilt arises from a judgment about uh, a, an act I've done a thing I've done um and I talk a little bit about this in the book trying to kind of you know make sure that people see that there is sort of you know a, that shame is kind of a thing you know all by itself um the, and the thing I think that's that's the trickiest for my view is sort of, you know, you hear about the kind of naked examples that I give and people are like, well, isn't that just embarrassment, right? Um, and it, yeah, I mean, there are sometimes where those cases are cases of embarrassment, but I think you can think of examples that are sort of in that family where here's sort of the, you know, the things that kind of mark, I think, shame and embarrassment. So embarrassment, I think there's a sense of what I call in the book kind of conviviality. There's a sense that if I have an embarrassing situation, other people will sort of be sympathetic to me. They'll be like, oh no, oh my God, that thing happened to me, like, or whatever. Like we'll sort of share our embarrassing stories as a kind of bonding experience. Um, Typically when we have shameful experiences, they're hard for us to talk about. We usually don't reveal them. We certainly don't reveal them with people that we we don't know particularly well. Never tell people about our sort of shameful experiences. Um, the other thing I think that's true about embarrassment and there is that there's sort of a sense that you could, if something embarrassing happened to you, you could sort of like go on with those same people who sort of witnessed your embarrassment. You know, if I trip up the stairs or something, I might really feel embarrassed about that, but I don't. I don't get the sense that you know the people around me are sort of never going to see me the same way again. Whereas if if you have a sort of shameful experience in front of other people, there's a sense in which you sort of feel like, oh, God, I don't think they could ever sort of see me without thinking of this thing that happened to me in front of them, right? Or oh, they're never going to see me the same way again. So I think there's this kind of, um, I think we see this kind of radical separation in embarrassment and shame, where embarrassment is this sort of like, it's painful, you feel self-conscious, it's negative, but you have a sense that sort of, you know, people will be sympathetic and your life will go on. But if you have sort of shameful experiences, I think you, you think, oh, people are not going to be sympathetic. And it's not clear that my relationship to these people is going to sort of continue the way it did before.
0: I mean, it struck me that in some cases, at least, it seems like embarrassment and shame might overlap and yet still be distinct experiences. I mean, I thought your example of like the sort of the person getting caught while masturbating was kind of a good example of that. I mean, it's both embarrassing in the moment, but I could imagine it also feeling shameful and those two emotions being related or overlapping, but distinct emotions.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I don't I don't have really strong views about like how far apart embarrassment and shame are. I do think they're they're distinct, but I think you could have an embarrassing situation that feels really really severe. And you could also have a, a shameful situation that feels in some sense mild, right? So you could have a kind of mild shame experience that's going to feel a little bit more like embarrassment. And then you could have a really serious, severe, embarrassing experience that might start edging into more into the shame territory. So I, I think it's probably the case that you there could be examples where you sort of, you know, you might even flip back and forth between the two um, and that there's there are d- certain cases that are going to be sort of closer to each other than not. Um, But I do think ultimately they are distinct experiences.
0: Well, so by way of grounding listeners in the literature, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how other philosophers have discussed the concept of shame and how they've tried to explain it as a moral... Emotion, and yeah. specifically, you mentioned uh, a traditional view versus a naturalistic view. I wonder if you can yeah. talk a little bit about what those are, and you know, kind of how they're different from each other.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I so there are three views that I identify in the book that I think exist in the literature. There's what I call the traditional view. There's what I call the naturalistic view, and then there's what I call the pessimistic view. So the traditional view is the one that you find most frequently in moral philosophy. And on the traditional views telling, shame is uh, an experience that we have when we fail to live up to our values or when we fail to live up to um, character traits that we aspire to have. Um, it's It's an emotion about failure, essentially. And it's usually failure of character, some sort of thing you wanted to be that you found out you're not that thing. Um, so this comes from like Rawls and, um, we see this in like Gabrielle Taylor is probably one of the most famous people who's held this view. And then they differ on whether or not shame can be a good thing. Many of them do think it's a good thing. Why is that? Well, they think it is morally valuable for us as agents to be able to detect when we've failed to be the kind of people that we want to be. So it's a good thing if I have this aspiration to be a certain sort of person, and I fail to be that person, it's good that I feel shame about that, because it shows that I value that thing, I value that character trait, Um, it's a good character trait that I I want to have, that you should have, Um, and you need an emotional experience that helps you sort of detect that you failed to do that thing, that you failed to live up to this value, that you failed to embody this character trait. So they see it as, on the whole, mostly um, a valuable moral experience. Then you've got the the naturalistic view, and they tend to be they're a little bit more recent on the scene, although not completely. Um, they tend to be a little bit more um, empirically informed, and they tend to think of the cases that that sort of I talk about um, more frequently than the than the traditional view. So the traditional view tends to go with you know the examples like I gave earlier about oh, I've stolen candy from a store or I've cheated at poker or something and that makes me feel bad or I've been ungrateful um, and that makes me feel shame. Um, The naturalistic view will focus on cases that seem weirder or non-moral or harder to um, capture on the traditional view. So they'll talk about the shame that um, people might feel in front of their social superiors, for example. Like if your boss dresses you down in front of a whole bunch of people uh, might make you feel shame. And so the naturalistic view will say, well, look, that doesn't look like it has moral content is the way they'll put it. We can feel shame about a, a bunch of stuff that seems like it has nothing to do with moral character. I can feel shame about being low class. I can feel shame about you know, my looks. I can feel shame about you know, a, a physical deformity or something like that. So the naturalistic view will point to all of those examples and say, well, look, this doesn't look like it has any moral stuff going on. Um, maybe shame is just a sort of, you know, they'll talk about the way the, the role that shame will play in kind of evolutionary stories about psychology. Um, shame develops in a social context and it is the kind of thing that you feel because you have been confronted with a social superior and it signals, um, your sort of willingness to accept social norms is usually the story that they will tell. So some of them think that's kind of, what they'll call proto-moral, right? So it's it's about social life and it's about getting along in social life. It's not moral per se, but you might think of it as kind of like moral training wheels, like baby steps on its way to morality, something like that. Um, and then you have the pessimistic view and the pessimistic view is again, mostly moral philosophers, although they there's a mix sometimes. Sometimes they're more kind of on the traditional side. Sometimes they're more on the culturalistic side. They just think shame is bad. It is it's useless or it's immature or it's self-destructive. And they will happily point to sort of all of the bad things that you could think of with shame. They'll point out that people with mental illness suffer feelings of shame, that people with um, who suffer from addiction will, will suffer from feelings of shame, that sometimes rape victims will feel shame. Um, all of these things on the pessimistic view will point to, look, shame is just bad. It's a bad feeling. It's a bad emotion. We don't need it. If anything, it impedes our moral progress. Um, It's keeping us sort of bound to the social views of others. Um, It's ultimately not helping us improve. And we would just be better off without it. And we can get, you know, other emotions like guilt or, or disappointment or, you know, just resolving to do better all of those things will be better emotional reactions and we'd be better off if we just tried to get over shame sort of altogether. So those are kind of the three views that I identify in the book.
0: Right. I mean, so if I may, I mean, it seems like the traditional view and the pessimistic view are focused on answering the question of when we should feel shame if ever. And the naturalistic view is kind of bent on asking the question of when we do feel shame. Um, uh, so so um, if you if you could maybe just say a little something about what you think each one of those views does well and maybe what you think it kind of doesn't do so well
1: sure sure yeah i think the traditional view you know much as i much as i sort of disagree with it um, they have a very good story to tell about how our moral emotional life can be rich and complex and have different things in it that are not just guilt. So they do a good job of sort of showing that our moral emotional landscape um, is richer than we sometimes give it credit for. And they have a good story to tell about the fact that we don't just care about what we do or don't do or what obligations we do and don't fulfill, that actions are not the only thing that sort of morally matters to people, that character matters, that living up to certain sorts of value standards that we hold matters. And that that's sort of just as much a part of moral life as what you do and don't do. So I think they do that really well. Um, I think the thing the naturalistic view does well is that it takes really seriously The wide range of cases of shame. So they're the ones who have sort of, I think, really pushed the traditional view to think about um, look, there are all these other examples of cases of shame that are not just people sort of failing to live up to values. We feel shame about a huge range of things. So the naturalistic view sees that really well. Um, And I think the pessimistic view sees that too. And they're the ones who, I think, sort of remind people that. there are human beings who are sort of suffering with various kinds of, um, you know, struggles with their identity. And um, we need to sort of pay attention to those people who might, you know, be kind of like suffering in silence, for example, with shame about mental illness or shame about addiction. And they give uh, they give a sense that there's a sort of another world that's possible for us. They give us a sense that um, there are, Uh, There's another sort of emotional landscape that we could strive for if we wanted to. And they're very good about pointing out sort of the political um, structures that influence the kinds of emotions that we feel. So I really think all of them do something well, even if I end up disagreeing with them.
0: Mm, But what what about what they don't do so well?
1: Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I take a lot, uh, I take a lot of time in the book to talk about what they don't do so well. Um, so the thing about the traditional view uh, that I think it does not so well is that it, it has this tendency to kind of start with um, really clear, what I will call moralized cases. Um, their vision is a little narrow. So they, they start with cases that I think work really well for their definition and work really well for their view. But then when it comes to other kinds of cases, they either just sort of ignore them or they try to kind of tell some story about how those cases aren't are sort of real or they're, they're irrational somehow, or they are uh, not, quote unquote, not really shame at the end of the day. And that I think is, you know, if we're, if we're trying to do moral psychology well, and I think if you're a philosopher and you're doing moral psychology, you certainly hope you're doing it well. Uh, if we're aiming at that, I think we need to do a better job of explaining the sort of wide range of our emotional life and not just kind of focus on the cases that look kind of neat and tidy. Uh, I think it's important to think about the cases that might look a bit weird and look a bit uh, even irrational. Um, there might be something we can learn from thinking about even emotions that appear not rational. Um, I think the thing about the naturalistic view is that it it sort of takes the, the diversity problem of shame, right? The idea that there's so many different things we feel shame about. I think they sort of take the view that um, that fact should sort of lead us down the path of kind of rejecting that this thing is a moral emotion altogether. I think they're a little bit too wedded to a sort of evolutionary story um, about shame Uh, And they just think that the important thing is to sort of talk about, to give a kind of like accurate description of shame. And they just sort of leave the moral story out. The problem on my view with that is that if we think of this emotion as tied up to our moral life, because we do, we have for a long time, we've wrestled with this question about the extent to which it is or isn't moral. It seems like at that point, the naturalistic view is sort of not providing the best description they could provide that that seems to be their guiding light. They're supposed to be describing the emotion really well. And so they turn to kind of psychological stuff, empirical psychology stuff and um, evolutionary stuff to explain it. But it seems to me, if you're pr- providing a good explanation or a good description, the moral aspect of it does seem like it should be involved in that description, because in fact, we do experience that thing, this emotion as morally laden, at least in some cases. Um, With regard to the pessimistic view, I I think they, even though I sort of like that they give us this option of, you know, reshaping our emotional life, I think sometimes they take that a bit too far. Um, the idea that I think they have an overall allegiance to a positively oriented moral psychology. They think that, uh but mostly that a good moral psychology is mostly full of positive emotions and not too much negative emotions. So they tend to be a little bit allergic to negative emotions kind of in general. And that's the part that I think that I think they're sort of going wrong in thinking that our moral emotional life should be usually a positive, like usually filled with positive emotions. I just think that's a kind of like overly narrow conception of, moral emotional life. It's just more complicated than that. And negative emotions can be morally valuable, even if they turn out to be sometimes self-destructive, even if they turn out to be excessive in some ways. Um, I don't think that our emotional lives sort of need to be this kind of positively oriented thing.
0: Mm. Well, so in your book, you tell an interestingly and I think importantly different story describing what we mean when we talk about the concept of shame and also kind of reflecting on why we might think about it normatively in a kind of at least partially positive, even if still kind of mixed way. So I mean, I, I wonder if you could kind of lay out your idea of, you know, how we could think about the emotion of shame from a descriptive standpoint more productively and why you think it might have more normative value.
1: Yeah, sure. I so, I end up taking the view that shame is really about, has something to do with our identities and has something to do with how we see ourselves. And the way I'll describe that in the book is um, I think of shame as an emotion that we experience when we experience what I call a tension between our self conception and our identity. So, Those are two kind of loaded terms, Um, but I don't have sort of like major metaphysical commitments about what identities are and what self-conceptions are. The basic idea is a self-conception is sort of how you see yourself. It can be uh, local, it can be global, it can be static, it can be dynamic, it can change over time, but it's how you see yourself. And then your identity is comprised of not just your self-conception, although that is a part of it, but then there's other things that go into your identity that are not necessarily part of your self-conception. So the example that I sometimes use is uh, think about the, the place where you grew up. People have really different views about how much the place where they grew up, their hometowns, contribute to their sense of self. Sometimes people see it as really deeply informative to their sense of self. They see it as deeply a part of who they are. They embrace it. They think it's important. And then some people see it as just a kind of accidental fact about the, you know, this is a place where I just happened to grow up. I could have grown up in any other place. It didn't really contribute to my sense of self in any meaningful way. Or people could sort of be, you know, feel alienated from, you know, I I grew up in this place and I don't, I didn't ever feel comfortable there and I couldn't wait to get out and I defined myself in some ways against that thing. You can have a wide variety of of sort of views about how much you think this thing contributes to your sense of self. Um and I also want to hold on to the idea that like you could that could move back and forth depending on what stage you are in your life, right? So, you know, you're a teenager and you think Oh my God, this is, you know, I can't wait to blow this town, right? That that sort of view. And then later in your life, you could sort of look back on it and go, you know, that actually like matters a lot. It mattered more to me than I thought it did to grow up to that place. And it really it influenced me more than I thought that it did. And I sort of now see that as kind of informing who I am. So I think in these two pieces, right, the self-conception and your identity, this is the thing that we, the relationship between these two things is something we sort of work out through the course of our life. Um, I think shame happens. When we are confronted with moments where some portion of our identity ends up what I call eclipsing or overshadowing our sense of our, of our self-conception, right? So um, take, for example, my, one of my favorite examples in the book is from uh, Lucy Grayley's um, Autobiography of a Face. So she's, she had childhood cancer. She had surgery, multiple surgeries on her jaw. It's left her with a, it's a face that's sort of asymmetrical. So her jawline is asymmetrical. And um, there are different parts, different moments in her life where she feels like her face is sort of the only thing that people see about her, the only thing that stands out about her, the most sort of salient characteristic of her. And it's in those moments when she feels as though she is her face. And she even describes herself that way. Um, I feel like I was my face. So... That's when I think shame happens. I think most of the cases that we're thinking about, and that includes the moral cases, that's what's going on. When we feel shame, we're feeling this kind of tension between how I see myself and this larger aspects of my identity. Um, I then argue that even though that's going to include all of the sort of cases that you know, folks like the advocates of the pessimistic view don't like... Um, I think I can explain sort of a really wide range of cases on that account. Um, Even though that experience is going to turn out to sometimes be painful, even though that experience is going to turn out to be um, excessive sometimes, I think overall, it's valuable for us to be liable to that inviction because I think what it shows is a sensitivity to the fact that we are not always the people who we take ourselves to be. And that, I think, is a, is a morally valuable quality to have. It's important for you to realize that who you think you are is not the final authority on who you are. It's not the determining factor of yourself. It's not the determining factor of your life. There's a kind of humility, I think, in that um, and a kind of willingness and openness to criticism, a willingness and openness to the views of other people And so I think shame, a liability to shame sort of reflects that we maintain those important commitments. And I think of those as morally important commitments. So that's the sense in which I think it's normatively valuable um, in spite of the fact that it's often painful. Mm.
0: Is there a sense of like dessert? There, in a sense of like, you know, some forms of shame are appropriate because the person deserves to feel shame, whereas maybe the kinds of shame that the people on the pessimistic view are talking about, you know, it is shame descriptively. It's just that those people don't deserve to feel shame.
1: I think that's a really tempting view that people have, Um, but it's actually a view I want to reject. (laughs) So, and I get in trouble for this. Like, this is I understand this is a sort of contentious part of my account. So I I don't actually want to, I don't think it's, I don't think we can come up with a list of um, what I call appropriateness conditions for shame. So uh, the example that I give in the book is again, like, you know, I suppose I have like, let's suppose I have a crooked nose or something like that, right? There's a sense in which people want to tell me, you shouldn't feel shame about that. It's not an appropriate object of shame. But the next question is, well, but why? So, well, one answer is because you didn't do anything to have your crooked nose. Well, right. But then we feel shame about things we can't control all the time. That's one of the sort of classic features of shame. That's one of the things that's caused so much trouble with the view in moral philosophy in particular is that we oftentimes feel shame about things we have absolutely no control over. So... The sense in which I, quote, shouldn't feel shame about my nose can't be, well, you should only feel shame about the things you can control. We often feel shame about things we can't control. Um, I think that's just to sort of like mistake what's going on with the view. Um, I think most of the time when we say you shouldn't feel shame about X, what we what we actually mean is something like, I don't want you to feel these painful feelings," or I don't want you to judge yourself really harshly because of this thing, because I, as a third party, sort of think you don't deserve it or something like that. Um, but on my view, that's just not how shame works. Shame is about me working out the relationship between something, part of my identity and part of who I am. So the fact that I feel shame about my crooked nose, for example, um, look I feel as though it's kind of overshadowing my self-conception and that's why I feel shame about it I'm not judging myself to be a bad person because I have a crooked nose I'm not imagining that I deserve to have a crooked nose because I've done something terrible in my life. The reason I feel shame about it is because it feels like it's the only thing people see about me It's the most salient feature of me I feel like it's eclipsing who I actually how I actually want to come across something along those lines but none of that is really about or, um, what's the right objects. It's, not, it's it, sort of sense that your shame is like your nose is, is quote unquote, really shameful or it's not quote unquote, really shameful. Um, I don't think there are such things as sort of objects that are quote, really shameful or not really shameful. I think people have different views about these aspects of their identities and shame is about me working that out. And people can help me get over those feelings if they're painful and difficult and destructive to me. But that doesn't make them wrong. It doesn't make my feelings wrong. It just means this is how I feel about myself, right, in this particular part of my identity, even if it's painful. So, yeah, so I actually want to avoid um, conversation about dessert or appropriateness.
0: Mm, okay. Um, well, so shame isn't only something people feel it's also something people do and it strikes me that you know this interview is going to go up on the internet and it'll be (laughs) shared it'll be shared on twitter and other places like that where occasionally people engage in behaviors intended to make people feel shame and you talk about some of those behaviors in in your book about um shaming Invitations to shame and and stigmatizing. I wonder if you could briefly talk about those and how you think that kind of um, the way that third parties engage in sort of this emotion is relevant and how we should think about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I want to kind of make a distinction between different sorts of practices that I think we have. So I think probably the most salient one is going to be. So so most of the book is about emotions it's about feelings um, and then when I get to the fifth chapter I kind of want to stress that um, the practices of shaming that we have aren't always about the um, the particular emotion of shame so sometimes we're shaming because we want people to feel shame but sometimes we're shaming because we just want people to shut up um, so I, I make a distinction between invitations to shame um, stigmatizing and then shaming. So invitations to shame, I think are mostly interpersonal. It's those cases where someone is engaging in a certain sort of behavior that you kind of want them to have that realization that I've described, that's present in experiences of shame. So I want people I want my, you know, my, let's suppose my, like my very arrogant colleague, right, I'm talking to my very arrogant colleague, and he's, you know, going on and on about, you know, whatever some uh, whatever new exciting thing he's doing or he's talking solely about himself again or something along those lines. And um, I might do something like roll my eyes and say, like, oh, yes, please tell me more about all of your wonderful accomplishments. Um, <laughs> the way in which I'm, I'm inviting him to sort of see himself from my perspective. I'm inviting him to see himself as, you know, going on and on about himself, about talking to himself too much, about being arrogant, because I think he doesn't see himself that way in the course of our conversation. So mostly invitations to shame are those kind of interpersonal moments where you try to get someone to have a kind of realization, like see yourself through my eyes and realize that you don't, you're not seeing yourself this way, but you are being this way, right? Or I'm presenting a different view of you um, that you should entertain and realize that maybe your behavior is obnoxious. Um, Shaming by contrast is I think actually much more about the calling of attention to someone's behavior. And that's what we see mostly online. So it's not just that sort of interpersonal interaction that we have with people where we try to get them to have a sort of realization. Shaming is more about, hey, everyone look at this person and holding people up as a sort of example. I think there's a bunch of different reasons why we might do that. I think sometimes we just treat it as a sort of social sanction because we think someone has done a bad thing. Sometimes we are trying to inspire the person to kind of reflect on their behavior, but we're doing that by making them the object of a lot of negative attention. So shaming is about sort of the calling of negative attention um, to a person for something they've done or said. And then uh, stigmatizing is, I think, more about sort of your status in social life. Um, Stigmatizing is something we do when we kind of mark someone out as belonging to a particular group, and we think of that group identity as sort of a defining feature of who they are. So I talk a lot about in the book about sort of the stigmatization around poverty and how, you know, you sort of mark people as quote unquote, the poor. And that that thing, that sort of group identity is supposed to be then the thing that kind of defines them above all else. So somebody becomes stigmatized when their group identity is sort of becomes the, the main thing that we know about you or the main way that we talk about you. So that's really the difference between those three.
0: Well, so I think one of the potentially controversial Uh, arguments you make in the book is that the experience of the emotion of shame could have moral value and be something that we want to preserve and feel in some circumstances. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think that's the case and sort of when shame has moral value that we should recognize
1: and appreciate. Yeah. So uh, the way I actually want to talk about this is not so much that there are particular cases where feeling shame is valuable, but rather it's important for us to maintain a liability to the emotion. So um, I have a liability to an emotion when um, I'm going to be prone to feel it in the circumstances when it typically arises. Uh, It's like a disposition to feel it. Um, And that's the part that I think is actually more valuable than the particular particular episodes of shame. So its value is something that lies in the liability and not so much episodic. Um, I just, the liability I think is what is sort of tied to those important moral commitments that I talked about earlier. So I think that if we, we have a liability to shame because we are not so certain that we are who we think we are. And as moral agents in sort of the fellow, you know, living with our fellows, in a social life, we've got to be open to the possibility of sort of moral feedback and moral criticism from our fellow moral agents. And I think when people have a liability to shame, it's because they see themselves as open to the possibility that they might not realize things about who they are. They might not realize that they're being arrogant. They might not realize that they're being, you know, the shameless flatterer. They might not realize um, that they're being overbearing or something along those lines. And so, maintaining the liability to the emotion for me is the is the important thing. There might be particular cases where um, your response, shame responses, sort of reveal that you've kind of realized um, that someone has, you know, presented a different version of of you, right? So that back to my you know my arrogant colleague, if I sort of roll my eyes at him, um, and he has that sort of moment of shame. Well, in some sense, that's a good thing, because he's kind of come to the realization that his behavior, he saw his behavior in one way, and I saw it in a different way. And so it, it shows that he's sort of taking seriously my ability to present him with a different view of himself, Right? he's taking my view of himself as a sort of serious possibility. And I think that's the thing that makes shame sort of morally valuable, is that openness to seeing other versions of ourselves that people present as as a morally valuable thing.
0: Well, so Krista, in closing, I wanted to ask you a question about the experience of of reading your book, because you provide a lot of really kind of helpful and interesting examples throughout the course of the book, some of which seem to be kind of drawn primarily from like personal experiences people might have had or at least understand, but many of which are drawn from literary sources, including quite memorably the story of Ajax from from Sophocles. I, I wonder if you could talk about your decision of sort of which examples to include and why And, and why you think the, why, why you found the literary examples useful in explaining the ideas in your book?
1: Yeah, I am, um, you know, I am, I'm a humanist through and through, I have to say. And so when I think about our moral life and I think about moral emotions in particular, what matters to me is what I would call reflective articulations of those experiences. Um, And I think you find those especially clearly in things like memoirs, in things like film, in things like literature and novels. You see sort of human emotional life worked out well, and you see it laid out in some detail. Um, And what it's like not from a third party perspective right so it's not it's not being studied in a lab it's not you know somebody you know it's not a it's not a sort of you know questionnaire you're answering for a study but it it's you talking about what it's like to go through this emotion yourself and sort of really reflecting on that and i know it's it's kind of it's popular now to sort of think of those things as kind of like fundamentally biased in some sense that they are the sort of first personal reflective descriptions of an emotion or an emotional experience um, is supposed to be sort of suspect, I think, in some way. Um, and I just don't hold that view, right? I, don't, I mean, sure, people are going to articulate their experiences in certain ways, um, but I don't think it's fundamentally distorted, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you read lots of different examples of it. You can see a sort of richness of experience um, reflected in all of these different. you know I, I pick up literature from a wide variety of time periods. I pick literature from a wide variety of perspectives. and I think you see some shared themes in all of those. Um, so I don't think I don't want to hold the idea that it's sort of like the first person is kind of like fundamentally distorted. I think it's important to to listen to how people describe their experiences. And in fact, I think it's important sort of from a moral perspective as well. there's a sense in which I want to honor. What people have to say when, when someone like Lucy Greeley talks about her difficulties with living with a physical deformity, I want to I wanna honor her experiences by sort of listening and taking seriously the way she reflects on that. So for me, the literary examples give us that sort of rich tapestry of human emotional experience kind of laid out on the page, which is why I like them so much.
0: Mm, Great. Well, Krista, thank you so much for coming on the program. It was a really, a great, yeah, it was a real, real pleasure talking to you about this excellent book.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.